This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. All right, I'm hitting record because we started a conversation uh, about 10 minutes ago. Always, that's our ritual. Should have been on on mic. Um, And it's about the seismic shift in power right now that many of us don't realize has happened. And I was telling Dr. Carr, and welcome to In Class with Dr. Greg Carr. Hey, Doc. Um, Hey, Professor Hunter. Continue to teach, because I'm I'm sitting here taking notes as you teaching. And I say, oh, oh, we did it again. Please press pay, because everybody needs to hear what I'm hearing. You did. did. Um, And let me say thank you to everyone who joins us every Saturday, because this is a blessing for me. Uh, This is a way as cathartic because I'm working through some things a lot. Right. And I was telling you that I realized that I have come to a reckoning of understanding that no longer um, there are too many of us who are wedded to making white people comfortable in the workplace and society or what have you at the exact same time that we, you know, fight the injustice we have in our minds. And I, and I was telling you about a specific person in my life who I'm like, that person's never going to realize because they're a multimillionaire off of making white people comfortable. And they don't realize the power that they have right now that they could be almost a billionaire had they, you know, made a, made a shift. And I mm. said, you know, I, I'm in a dangerous place right now because I recognize this and it is the thing that will unravel everything if each and every one of us recognize the collective power and the individual power that we have in the spaces that we're in, right? And so I was telling you that, you know, it's really, I, I, I'm, I don't know how I feel about it, but I look up and I see too many of us and I said, I'm committed to making people uncomfortable. I'm committed yes. to making the system uncomfortable because it's not gonna change any other way. That requires us collectively. So, you know, before we get into the lesson, and I want to spend a little time, we're going to talk about Breonna Taylor later, um, but I've been um, connecting dots throughout the diaspora. So, you know, last week I said I applied for my visa. It was approved, right? Yes. I I was going to leave for maybe three weeks to a month through election day. I was going to leave on Christopher Columbus Day that weekend (laughs) and go to this place. Yes. And yeah. sit out, you know, see what the landscape. So when I went to, you know, call about the place that I wanted to stay, they were like, where are you coming from? I said, America. And they were like, wait, hold up. So if you're coming, yeah, if you're coming from America, you're going to have to quarantine at the hotel for five to seven days. Right. You, you will not have access to the beach because it's a public beach and they have zero COVID cases. I can't go to a restaurant. I can't really leave the hotel room. So I'm like, I'm going to spin. And I did the math way too much money X to number not be able to do anything to sit in the same room i could sit in for free at my house right because our country sucks and so i was like man this is what it feels like to be a part of an ish hole country where you're a pariah to the rest of the world i was like how what about the flip? that what the flip how you know so I, said, oh, I sat there and i was like oh this is oh i don't like how this feels but i understand why they won't let us in indiscriminately because we're used to coming you know the, you know, America coming in and doing whatever we want. And they're like, no, 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 no. You're going to have to sit your ass and you're going to have to be tested as soon as you get off the plane and you're going to have to sit and wait. I was like, yo. Can't, can't ah. my, my, my buddy, uh, 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 Jelani Cobb, uh, tweeted something maybe last night, yesterday, I, kind of, I must have saw it this morning, where he said, simply, the United States is no longer a world power. And somebody said, oh, yeah, no, they're now a world influencer. 
And I thought about it. You know, Jelani, good brother. You know, he's he's one of those people at those platforms, New Yorker, NY, you know, Columbia. And I'm saying, when it becomes safe for you to make a certain, well, it's never safe, which is part of what we're going to talk about, I think, today. But uh, when it becomes safe to tell the truth and nobody really pushes back, then that's a that's a moment that we should know we're in the middle of, of a bit of a shift. And for you to walk us through that, I mean, you're trapped. I felt trapped. And that's how I feel right now. I feel trapped. Really? You know, we really being able to move freely. And I think about, you know, ironically, you know, we're <laughs> we're in America 2020 and we're free. Well, but we are not free, right? And and even, even within the country, right? That's I don't right. feel comfortable traveling. My no. mother lives in the South. I don't feel comfortable getting in my car and driving no. down South. And I thought about it yesterday. You know, I'm out, you know, I'm, I'm working out a little bit more. So I'm out looking in my neighborhood, Black Lives Matter, Black we're all in this together, unity, da 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 da. I go maybe a town over, you know, not Confederate flags, American flags. Well, they are Confederate flags. I mean, yes, they're I both know. red, white. I mean, I mean it's, they're using them as a proxy for confederate right like, so i'm saying like they're sending a message my neighborhood's sending a message you know there are these demarcations these invisible lines that you cross over almost like sundown towns now where you can't Ooh. feel comfortable going into them and i'm saying this is america i can't move freely in this country i can't leave because other countries are like nope wait a minute you what your country no y'all if you're coming from great britain or if you're coming from uh -huh. america uh, y'all don't have to stay where you are because we have no COVID cases and we're handling it and y'all are stupid. Y'all so like okay. stupid, stupid. Oh my God. What's the brother, um, Charlie Smalls, who wrote mm. the lyrics to the uh, Broadway play that got turned into the film, The Wiz. And those, those words, brother Charlie Small put in the mouth of Michael Jackson on, on, that, on that scarecrow hook. <laughs> you can't win, you can't get even, and you can't get out of the game. I mean, shout out to Charlie Smalls, who was an ancestor, that brother. I mean, but, you know, it's interesting. Uh, Ron Walters, we talked about Ron last week, Baba Ron, uh, an ancestor. You know, you, as we talked, as we got ready for this week, you said, you know what? We should talk about this. What do you think about it? So, you know, I, again, I went uh, and with the magic of a little alchemy, was able to go into, the, you know, do, do some research on some of these cases. And then, you know, but it. As, 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 as I was looking, I kept thinking about what you charged me with and what you charge us all the time with, which is to think. You know, I mean, how are we, like everybody else, I'm trying to say, what are we seeing? How can we filter out all this noise, these distractions? People talking about, oh, Charles Bartley said, I don't care what Charles, is Charles Bartley talking about posting up? Is he talking about fadeaway jumpers? He's talking about pick and roll? No, then, then I don't need to hear what Brother Bartley has to say beyond the fact that I respect he's a human being like I'm a human being, but you don't know nothing about this. So what you and Ernie Johnson and Shaq think, you know, it's, it's cool. I, I, but, but, but trying to make sense of this, going back and forth, looking at some of these cases, the, the New York case you, you're going to talk about in a minute, some others, you know, I'm looking, I'm pulling stuff and I'm looking around. And of course, Ron Walters came right back into focus. One of the things I think we have to do is do what we're doing. We're thinking about things that are happening right now, but we don't take enough time collectively to think about them in the arc of what has happened before and what's happening everywhere else. So we get caught up in the moment to moment battles. And, and so I pulled, and when you said that, it's interesting. Two things, first of all, harassing, making people uncomfortable rather, is cool. 
Why? Because that's how you get changed. In fact, I went and you were talking, that's why I said, you got to push play, Can Let me go get this book. Derek Bell, the great uh, legal scholar. This is the Derek Bell reader that was edited by Richard Delgado and John Stephanie, two of his colleagues. Derek Bell, and I, I point people to the Derek Bell reader because it's got a lot of his work. You know, Trump and, and the White Nationalist Party and all these, you know, white nationalist terrorists are saying they're against um, uh, this critical race theory. Now, critical race theory was a woman that came up and slapped them in the face. They wouldn't even know who it was. They can't answer. But a lot of critical race theory to me, and I tell my students this all the time, it's all very important work. It's thinking work. But the farther we get away from Jim Crow, the more kind of obtrusive some of it can be. I like the work by those early cats that had to fight those battles because in our looking for answers today, one of the things we should do is go back and look at the battles we fought when there were similar circumstances. I mean, you know, we're in this thing, this, we're in an economic depression and, and on the verge of one that is going to be larger than anything since the 1920s and 30s. In fact, may collapse the 1930s and pass it. So I went back and said, what are black people doing? So I started pulling books. There's a, there was a conference they had called the Amenia Conference. We talked more about that another time. We, we should do a whole one on that in 1933, where the NAACP is, is, is collapsing. It's on the verge of collapse. It's losing membership. People ain't got no money. White people, you know, I mean, things going on. So um, Joel Spangarn calls a meeting at his place in upstate New York to trout back his, his, his retreat. Because, you know, the elites are always going to be fine. Right. So he, he asked you boys and James Will and Johnson, y'all come up here. And then he says, let's invite some of these youngsters in their 20s and 30s to come up, these black folk, and talk about what we need to do. So who comes up there? Ralph Bunch comes, E. Franklin Frazier. And these young cats have begun to think about economics. They're, they're reading Marx. They're thinking about, and they say, you know what? Here's the problem. We don't have an economic plan. What we need is an economic, this is 1933. It's not 2020. You know what I'm saying? So, so we're looking for answers in 2020. So let's go back and look. When's the last time? Derek Bell, and this is where I want to go. I went already around the barn to get to this point. When you said, you know, I'm very comfortable making people uncomfortable, there's a piece in here that's excerpted from a, a, a law journal article that Derek Bell wrote, and uh, it's called Racial Realism. That's one of his theories. But he's writing, and he says, uh, he, he, he interviews this lady in 1964. Now, Derek Bell is a civil rights lawyer. He's, he's part of that group with the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. So when he's writing what becomes critical race theory, he's not just theoretical. He's saying, I was in these fights. I'm gonna tell y'all right now, maybe Brown wasn't, you know, I'm gonna write a hypothetical. What if they had decided Brown differently? What if they had said, today we uphold Plessy versus Ferguson and we're going to make separate equal. And if white people in the South or anywhere else don't make separate equal within six months to a year, we are then going to authorize immediate integration of all the schools. And so Derek Bell said, maybe if the court had said, we're going to let y'all keep y'all schools as long as you divide the money up. But if you don't divide the money up, we're going to force everybody together. He could have used a white supremacy against them. Anyway, th this is the kind of thinking Derek Bell is up. But this is from a guy who helped them get ready for Brown. So it's not somebody sitting somewhere or written a very interesting. No, this was a guy who was in the gun smoke. So he says he's interviewing his sister in the Delta, Mississippi Delta, 1964. Harmony. Uh, Harmony, little town called Harmony. He says, walking with Miss Bianca McDonald, one of the organizers, up a dusty, unpaved road toward her modest home, I asked where she found the courage to continue working for civil rights. Derek, she says slowly and seriously, I am an old woman. I lives to harass white folks. So anyway, what I'm saying is that spirit, <laughs> Derek Bell, look, them people in Mississippi say, look, I may never leave my little patch, but if you think that I'm gonna let you define my humanity it up does it upset you good 
because I'm a free woman living in, and so y'all might look at me on the documentary and you may have some book where you done read and you think somehow I'm just degraded. No, I am a human being in the world. I don't care if I ever leave this little patch called Harmony. And the other thing is Ron Walters wrote a book, one of his last books called Freedom is Not Enough. And the point you're raising <laughs> about, you know, freedom is not enough, black voters, black candidates, and American presidential politics. Wow. So what Ron Walters, and now mind you, Ron Walters, one of his earliest books is called Black Presidential Politics in America. He says, this is how you get a black president. He's writing this before he signs up to help run the Jackson campaign in 84. I mean, we're looking in the wrong direction. In other words, no, no, no critique, no shade, no disrespect to anybody writing political biographies now who are political operatives, who worked in you know the last 15, 20 years or last five years. Because you know, you read those, you learn, but you gotta go back to the people who have been in the gun smoke in previous generations who then download their mental computers near the end of their lives to get those playbooks so we can see what we can compare them to. This is something Ron Walter says very interestingly. At the end of the book, Black Turnout and the 2004 Presidential Election. This is after they steal the election of 2004, as we talked about. I mean, you know they stole the election of 2000. They do it through the attorneys general. In fact, we just saw the case in Ohio where they were trying to say you can only have one drop-off ballot box in each of the 88 counties. And you got Cleveland, which is in Cuyahoga County, with like 1.2 or 3 million people over 1,200-some square miles. They say you can only have one, one box dropped off. But the judge, the, the, the district court judge, telling them, no, uh-uh, no, that's not, no, no, that's not legal. Then, of course, you have to appeal. And so they can appeal that. But this is state law. See, so this is all, this is all going to be decided by elected judges. People are saying, you know, like we talked about a couple of times, doesn't matter who the judge is. Yeah, all those people should be quiet because you haven't studied enough. Either you're willfully disinforming people or you're just out here talking. So at any rate, I'm saying he, they stole the election in 2004, very similar to what they did in 2000. Voter purges, all the kind of stuff that you get it close enough to steal, you tip a couple of states, you win. But this is what Ron Walters says about this in the wake of the Kerry election. He says, if Kerry had won, first of all, he says Kerry's better than Bush. Now, you know, we, got, we still got people who are in the sand in uh, Iraq, still in Afghanistan. So if you want to know the difference between parties, please understand that perhaps your child wouldn't still be touring duty overseas if one party had won, and perhaps they would have. We don't, we'll never know. But he says this. He says, clearly the re-election of Bush is not good for Black people, George, George W. Bush. He says, however, if Kerry had won, the absence of a unified Black agenda, which is the result of a failure of the politics of Black agenda setting, would have worked to the detriment of Blacks in the sense that they couldn't have pushed, we couldn't have pushed Kerry to do some of the policy stuff we wanted because we didn't have the unified Black agenda. Mind you, this is Ron Walters, who is in the conversations about forming a Black political party in 72 in Gary, in 74 in Little Rock, who helps form MBIPA, the, 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 the National Black Political Party work, who comes all the way through all those things. He writes about them in that book we talked about last week. Pan-Africanism in, in the African diaspora. But here's Ron Walters saying, and this is where I thought it was very interesting. He says, the Republicans are now making inroads. This is 2004. So really, Ron Walters makes transition before social media, before the capacity of other countries to interfere in the elections, before as um, mm, Michael Schmidt 
in that new book, Donald Trump versus the United States, says it just came out. Uh, he says, you know, uh, in the end of this book where he says, after the Mueller report came out, what does Donald Trump do the very next day? He says to the president of Ukraine, look, I'm gonna need you to investigate Joe Biden. He commits the crime that he says he didn't commit with the Russians, that Mueller, if you read the Mueller report, says, yeah, yeah, he did it. But he's in calls the Ukraine dude and says, will you do this for me? And of course, he, Schmidt ends the book by saying that finally he got his Roy Cohn in the form of this toady bar who lets off Michael Flynn, which is what Trump asked James Comey to do a couple of weeks into the presidency. So at any rate, what Ron Walters is saying is that when the when you don't have an agenda, when you don't have a black agenda, what our enemies will do is organize against you. And even those who rely on your vote, like the Democrats, are not compelled to do what you want them to do. This is the step that our brother Ice Cube, I think he's backing up a little bit on that. Some of these black nationalists out here have completely missed. When you start talking about third party, you're not talking initially about a party that is running candidates. What you're talking about is an organization that builds an agenda for a constituency. Once you have the agenda and you have enough people organized, you then go to the apparatus for electoral politics. And in this country right now, it's a two-party system. And then you go and interview them, local, state, federal, and say, now, in exchange for this, and that's what Cuba and I'm talking about, but I think one of the shortcomings is you don't start that analysis in 2020. You go back to the people who tried it before, and you learn the lessons, and this is where Ron Walters ends. He says, the weakening of the base of the Black church, for example, as a vehicle for political mobilization, expresses a weakening of the cultural base of the unity of the black community, and not just in terms of narrow functioning of its role in voter turnout. He says the weakening cultural base could have a much larger impact on black community than simply in terms of elections. It could signal that large segments of the black infrastructure are unavailable for political mobilization work. And it could also signal the emergence of a serious ideological conflict within the black community over the priority of issues that have not been hitherto regarded as central to black political behavior. What is Ron Walters saying? Just before he makes transition, he says, look, there was a time during Jim Crow where you had strong black institutions as a result of this apartheid, but that were nevertheless strong. The black church, the black press, the black media, particularly broadcast media. And you know, so you have these institutions, you've got black sororities and fraternities, which are a, a fraction of the power. The real power in terms of those organizations is in the fraternal and sororal organizations of the South and other places that are not college-based. Prince Hall Masons, Daughters of Isis, you know, the Order Eastern Star. These, are, you, these institutions are what were used when we emerged in the civil rights movement, when we then emerged in the first wave of electoral politics to make demands. They really kind of function as a party of sorts. That's why Gary 72 is so important. Uh, there's a book that a guy wrote, I think he's actually in England, it's called The Defeat of Black Power. And what he says, the Civil Rights and the National Black Convention of 1972, I think I talked about this one before, Leonard Moore. Leonard Moore is like, look, after 1972 was a high water mark, when you have people trying to get together to come up with a black political agenda. Now that doesn't mean that they're going to um, create a party to run candidates yet, because most of those people who are elected, Coleman Young and all of them, 
They're in the Democratic Party, but you're going to force them. Walters is saying a generation later, see, we've reached a tipping point now. In the election of 2004, he's saying these Republicans are making some inroads now. They're promising some stuff. This is before they go full white nationalist terrorists, which is where we are now. Because as a result of winning in, uh, in 2004, what do we have? We have a young guy who comes out of Illinois. And, you know, I, he, he's a little irritating to me in a lot of ways, but you can't argue with his research skills. And that's David Garrow, who wrote that big telephone book, Rising Star, The Ascent of Barack Obama. <laughs> you know I mean, I, it's hard for me to listen to him, but I understand. But I, but I read his books, of course. Garrow is tracing Barack Obama. He makes this ascent. And, and, and I remember, you remember that election in, in, uh, in Illinois in 2004. One of the reasons he's, and, and actually Walters writes about, this book comes out, I think, to, uh, Freedom is Not Enough, was published in 2005. Wait, wait, Walter. pause for a second, because one of the reasons why I remember it is because it's, it's one of the reasons why a lot of people think there's some occult connection to Barack Obama, because Barack Obama would not have had that seat if not for the scandal with the, the sitting guy who was pimping out, I think it's not even alleged, his wife, who his wife. Was, a, was an actress, and, and he had to step down. So that's Star Trek Vegas. Deep Space Nine, Jerry yes. Ryan. And, that's right. Yes. He was on Boston Public or Boston Public at that's the time. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> that was why I was like, he would he have even been able to take that seat? Because that no. guy was very popular. No. So, he was running behind in the primary. And remember, the other dude then imploded too, the Republican. There were charges of spousal abuse. Barack Obama was third. He was behind. When that guy was, I think, I don't know if Ryan was his name, but his, that was his wife's name, Jerry Ryan. Ryan. Yeah. yeah. Jerry Ryan. He, he, he self-destructed, that's exactly right. Barack Obama, but, but this is what, and th see this is what, but, and then of course the other factor in there that a lot of maybe the younger people might not be aware of, but that we remember of course, Ron Walters devotes a whole chapter to that. He's got in chapter six, leverage politics and the 2004 primary election scenario, the Sharpton and Mosley Braun campaigns. Carol Mosley Braun says, I'm not gonna run for that seat. As Garrow talks about, that's when Obama's like, okay, okay, then maybe I will. Because the last time, the time before that, when Barack Obama tried to get black as hell in Chicago and run against Bobby Rush, black people were like, Negro, and they waxed him. You, so you can't just step out there as the black candidate if you ain't checked with black people. I don't care how many Pritzkers and how many you got, Negro, this is still a black town. So, and Barack Obama knew that coming in. Harold Washington and who he was, he was, who he was looking at. But of course, Washington is gone and he's in the next generation. But I'm raising all that to say this. 19, of course, 2004, the DNC, which has been moving rightward, because remember, Kerry says, well, I'll be like Clinton, you're going to be a centrist, which is part of Ron Walters' problem. Ron Walters is like, because we don't have an organized agenda, these, this Democratic Party can keep going to the right. Well, what do they do? They size up this young guy who has not yet won his election. But the implosions have already begun. Now he's a front runner and they stick him on the stage in Boston at the Democratic National Convention. And he gives what, if he had been in a pulpit of a black church, would be a fairly pedestrian and completely forgettable speech. But because white people are so impressed, in the words of his eventual vice president, he's the first bright, articulate, clean Negro. Wait, Joe, Joe, Joe Biden? Wait, yes, because they're so amazed when a Negro has a little bass in his voice and can, and can modulate. They, oh, wow. So this is Jesse Jackson without the baggage. Well, yeah, I'm black enough for you. My mother's white, though. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. That's my father's black, but he came from Africa. Oh, what? hey, 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 come on. Get up on this stage. 
There's no black America. There's no white America. There's the United States of America. So, but as you say, through this accident of errors, because what happens after that? Obama wins his election. Ron Walters ends the book with that. He says, yeah, we get some individual progress. We have a senator now from Illinois. And that's important to add. He says he even added some seats to the Congressional Black Caucus, even though Kerry lost, but Kerry lost. And then George W. Bush is reelected. Four years later, that same kid, you can run him against the Republican and put together a coalition that is probably the last time you can count on race first without some black electoral agenda that will drive policy. And then the Republicans, after Obama wins, go full white nationalists. Oh no, hell no. We got, we got to make sure he gets uh, one term. That's Mitch McConnell. Then he gets reelected in 08. And now they like, uh, now they might as well just go and come out with the N-word. And of course, we know what happened with Mary Garland. They basically turned his last year into, you ain't the president no more. Because they're able with the Tea Party and the white nationalism to come, 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 come here. Now, how does this fit with what, where, you, uh, where you're leading us this morning? It okay, fits so like let me tell, can I tell us where we're leading? Yeah, so. no, no, please, now. Yes. Okay. Uh, so I sent you an article because it, it it frightened me a little bit. So I wanted yes. to, you know, anytime I'm a little upset, I need to plug in this to, to my brother here. All right. No so question. there's a story that's two Black Lives Matter demonstrators are facing life in prison, life in prison. And I'm like, okay, uh, Collinford Mattis and U-R-O-O-J, I guess that's Rouge, Yeah, uh-huh. Uh, Rahman are facing yes. life in prison after police say that they lit a police van on fire with a Molotov co cocktail at a Black Lives Matter protest in Brooklyn in May. They're not alone. 13,000 people have been arrested during protests this year, and they're charged with federal crimes, more than 300 people across 29 states. These two are facing life in prison, but they're not the last. And so I'm like, ooh. Now, let me just say publicly, I'm not for setting police cars on fire or throwing model top cocktails or, or rioting or looting or doing anything like that. Right. Life in prison, so I said, legal, legal mind, Dr. Greg Carr. <laughs> Have we seen this before? Yes. And what does this mean for, for, okay, the right to even peacefully protest because people getting hit with rubber bullets, Ali Velshi, you know, Trump's making fun of him getting hit with rubber bullets. Folks are losing eyes out there peacefully protesting, tear gassed peacefully within their rights as citizens. What you said last week chilled me because the law is what they say it is. That's right. If, if we can't assemble, if, and like you say, they, they lead you into these spaces. This is where you can go. So now you're contained. And, it, you know, it's, it's, again, it's like me trying to lead a country and then putting up the stop sign and you, you're trapped. Right. So right. legally, well, you know, like, and as we watch Cameron talk, tell us he's a black man as he proceeds to dishonor and disrespect Breonna Taylor's actual life. I love uh, that brother. I love that brother. He, he's part, he's he, part of a, a long tradition of Uncle Tom's. Congratulations, brother okay. Daniel. You will live forever. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, go ahead. <laughs> you know what, I, but I, you know, I, I think about that and I'm like, you know, he gave more deference to her neighbors. Of course he did. You know. Because they were and, only and, human beings involved. They, they so, were only human. That's in, in a society where black people are not human, the only thing you can charge a cop with is endangering white lives while you're hunting black people. Daniel Cameron read the statute the way you should read it in a white supremacist piece. And mind you, there are a lot of Negroes. I love the way our sister Tamika Mallory read him 
from the collar, from the head to the bottom. The only thing I would say to, 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 to Mika, and I, and I love to be really to talk about heart. That sister got heart, man. Her and Linda Star Stewart now, no question. The only thing I would say is, you know, comparing him to them cats on the boat that were trying to capture black people is a little over because all of enslavement was done under duress. I mean, I'm not trying to reduce 400 years of it because there's a lot of stuff. And then the years of the Arab slave trade before that, but it comes down to, in most of those cases, those Africans who were on those boats were prisoners of war and the wars were set off by the Portuguese, by the Spanish, by the English, by the French. And the demand basically was, if you don't go get me somebody else, you going. So, I mean, that's a, now Daniel Cameron, this Negro's eager coming out of football player for University of Louisville. I don't know if his first wife was white. Uh, he divorced her so quick and I can't find no pictures of her, but I know his second wife is. And Mitch McConnell was at, and by the way, this is the point now, all the folks on YouTube saying he married Mitch McConnell's granddaughter. That is not true, except uh, probably uh, ideologically, but no, he, he ain't no blood well, he kin. Mitch McConnell was at the wedding. He was well, at the wedding, his, right? Oh, he was. He, 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 he. In fact, Cameron had a Mitch McConnell uh, scholarship to go to school. <laughs> yeah. and you know, and he was, and he worked for Mitch McConnell as general counsel. So yes, that Negro you want to compare to the Negro in the house or in the field who says, "Boss, I'll be the one. Give me the whip," because in their mind, they don't think that they're black. What they think is that somehow they have figured out the way to get free. Because in their concept of freedom, it's not about collective freedom. It's about individuals. And that's why I would say Daniel Cameron, although his politics are uh, you know, abhorrent, even though he is a race traitor who will go down in history, his idea is not different than those who disagree with him 180 degrees, who would then say, but I will agree with him in this we have to make advancement as individuals. We can't think about everybody. And I think that's where, when you raise these two lawyers, and of course, you, you, know, you sent me the article, I read it, and so again, through, through the alchemy of legal research, I had some alchemy. So as I went through, I'm going through looking, I called up a couple of uh, my former students who are crack lawyers, a couple of folks who clerk for judges, and said, let me run this by y'all. We talked, we chopped it up last night, one thing I love, um, one of the many things I love about you, Karen, I think everybody should appreciate this is, you know, not only are you a first rate scholar and teacher, uh, crack journalist and done all that work, you don't leave any stones unturned. So I knew that if we want to talk about this, you know, you, you set the standard with your life. So you asked me about it, I said, let me go, all right, let me, let me go do this. So I'm looking, so I read. Before, before, we, oh, before we dive in, because I think, yeah. I think it's important. And as you're talking, I'm also like, you know, I want I want to move away from at collectively. You know, I don't know what we do with people like Daniel Cameron today. You know, uh, I don't know what we did with with people like Daniel Cameron. And I, and I also think, you know, if if the choices between freedom in your individual life and and freedom collectively, most people are gonna if given the choice That's choose right. their individual freedom. They're not sacrificing if they have nope. an opportunity to be free individually. Most people aren't coming back to get the rest. Most That's aren't exactly right. up. That's okay. Right. Most will keep keep it moving. And if they could pass into whiteness, as I'm reading The Vanishing Half, Ooh. if they could pass over, they're gonna do that too. So I, I feel like, you know, to spend time, but I wanted to just stop for a second because I've been looking to connect dots as I'm, I'm looking globally about, you know, where I can go and who I can connect with. So I'm. I'm connected with this, this, the, these sisters in, in Ghana. 
because they're struggling right now, right? So I'm gonna do some business with them. And, you know, I'm doing the, the beads that, you know, just because we have to make the economy that we need to see, the currency needs to flow. And so I'm buying these beads from this lady in Ghana and I wanted her to put the symbol for loyalty on a on a bead, right? And so I'm, I'm dealing with a couple of people here, Dr. Michelle Yaboa, Dr. Nana Yao, and I'm like, what is this symbol for loyalty? Well, they said in the Akan, you know, there are several symbols for loyalty. And I thought that that was profound. No you know, like, there are many, many symbols for loyalty. And, and loyalty doesn't mean loyalty per se. It's like a series of words and ideology. And there's one of interdependence, you know, right. and there's another, you know, there's, there's all of this. And I was thinking about how deep the, the Ghanaians in particular, the, the folks, the Ashantis, understood that we can't do anything without some sort of bond be, among ourselves, you know? That's and right. so that, that collective is something that I, I don't know how we get that, you know, because it's been beat out of us for, for a lot of years. There've been reward for doing what Daniel Cameron, Cameron did. He's up for the Supreme Court. He's on that short list for the Supreme oh, Court. Oh, I, I have no doubt that if Trump, if and when Trump steals this election, Clarence Thomas is gonna get a call. And there was an article in the Times a couple of days ago, you probably read it about the, uh, the lunch meeting that Barack Obama had with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And we talked about Ginsburg, and we didn't, we didn't, we didn't do a deep dive into her because there's some Fourth Amendment cases that she, I think, ruled incorrectly on in terms of talk about Breonna Taylor. The Fourth Amendment, the United States Constitution, basically said you got a right to be safe in your home. So when them cop, when them killer cops came in there hunting, you know, the Fourth, that's a Fourth Amendment. But there's no guarantee that Ruth Bader Ginsburg would come down on the right side of the Fourth Amendment, among other things. But the, but the, but the crux of the challenge we had, which we really, we raised it. Uh, we raised it last week, but we really didn't get into it. Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Stephen Breyer, if they were being like the White Nationalist Party, because this is what White Nationalist Party judges do, with a few exceptions, Rehnquist being one, they retire. Anthony Kennedy retired. They, you know, they, in other words, they retire, but they retire after having negotiated who's going to replace them. So if and when Trump steals this election, I have no doubt in my mind Clarence Thomas either has already been approached or will be approached. Daniel Cameron is auditioning for that chair, in my mind. He's only 38, well, she, you know. She was approached, um, but I think she, like many people, was under the mistaken impression that Hillary Clinton had a cakewalk. But so see, she, in not, her, so, yeah. so, so when she was approached to retire, I'm sure the conversation went something like, well, Hillary's going to win. I want to be replaced by the first woman president, because, you know, she's sure. on that, with a woman by the first woman president. And so in her uh, lack of Ego. understanding, of, yeah, yeah, Ego. that's what happened. I, I know for a fact that the only reason why she didn't retire is because she thought Hillary was going to win. And oh, sure. it would have been poignant to have the first woman president, uh, you know, sure. replace her. And the, the tragedy so. is that, that Hillary Clinton did win that election. In other words, again, not to relitigate, but when you go to Wisconsin and again, Greg, Greg Palace is probably him and Ari Berman, probably two best on this. They threw those ballots away. They didn't put the polling machines in Cleveland, places like that. But Wisconsin was absolutely stolen. He was in Pennsylvania. I mean, so Hillary Clinton did win. She wasn't wrong to bet on Clinton. But what they always underestimate is the fact that the United States of America is not seen as a country by the white nationalists unless it's white nationalists. I mean, we talk, in fact, we've talked about this book so many times. I finally tracked it down, moving all these other books over here, this mountain of books over here. Uh, the the uh, Cecilia O'Leary's book to die for. I want everybody to see it because we've already done this book. But this book to die for, you know, 
she's got a chapter in here where she says, up until World War One, being a patriot in this country was think something that was fought. Everybody had their own opinions back and forth, but she's got a chapter in here near the end called, yeah, the chapter 12, My Country Right or Wrong, World War One and the Paradox of American Patriotism. She says around World War One, says the government joined forces with right-wing organizations and vigilante groups did a racially exclusive, culturally conformist, militaristic patriotism. That's there. That's when it began to make the ascension. If we remember the Klan, shout out to Smiling Mike Pence and his brother Greg in the Congress and Smiling Mike from Indiana, because that's where the Klan between Indiana and Georgia gets reignited in 1915. World War One is in its first year. That's when they move this thing. And being a patriot up until then, you got black women out of wells and them arguing. We mean the right to vote. Hell, I, I'm black, which means that you get the right to vote. That don't mean I'm gonna get it. I mean, they're arguing about what it means to be an American all the way from the end of the Civil War up through World War One. But then World War One, remember, this is where they um, Du Bois is like, look, we gonna close ranks because these Germans, we got real problems. So yeah, we we'll be in the army. He's right in the crisis. Close ranks, go. And then when and then when we win. He writes in the crisis, we return fighting, make way for democracy. I got a couple of folks out here now, some of the um, our Black nationalist family that are saying, we're not going to close ranks. Okay, this is what we need to do. You know you know the name Du Bois. I know you wrote, read two sentences in a book of quotes attributed to Du Bois, and you want to attack that, but you probably want to read more. If you read more instead of cherry pick and see, because a lot of people making arguments now are making arguments the way lawyers make arguments. I don't care about the truth. I'm trying to win. So I'm going to look through these cases for whatever quote I need, and I'll let the judge or the jury sell it. So y'all stop out acting like y'all looking for the truth. You're trying to win arguments. In the meantime, our people out here in the battlefield getting killed. But Du Bois's point is, yeah, we'll close ranks, but then we're coming back to fight. But by then, the white nationalists have begun to fuse patriotism and whiteness together. So in the United States now, because that was a century ago, what we've seen over the last hundred years is when you wave a flag, it don't matter if it's the Confederate battle flag or the, or the Star Spangled Banner, that flag means white. And you can't make it mean something different just because you give up blood or you get your head beat on the Selma Bridge. No, those white people mean them. That's why those Proud Boys, for example, are headed to Oregon today under the protection mm. of the police, even though they're acting like the police are gone. That's why them white boys were getting counseled uh, the night that Daniel Cameron and that, and that secret grand jury let Breonna Taylor's killers go. They're getting counseled by the Louisville police. Why? They on the same team. You see that flag patch on that cop's arm? And you see that black cop over there with the same flag patch, scared to say something because they know that in the locker room, it ain't the same locker room that you see on Chicago PD or Law and Order Special Victims Unit. No, that's TV. I'm talking about the real room where Ice-T come in to change his clothes and live in them looking at him like, in other words, the real room, the room you covered for years in New York, this is the real room. That flag patch don't mean you black. The only thing you get from that flag patch in the same uniform I get on is the right to remain silent when I start talking crazy, because I'll shoot you too. But what I'm saying is that when we start thinking about how to think about Daniel Cameron, I think you're absolutely right. In fact, it wouldn't matter what I think. You are absolutely objectively right, correct. Most people would pick their individual advancement or at least protecting themselves when they think that there's no way to organize enough to beat a system. 
And when you don't have enough people, you're going to make your own decision. We've seen Daniel Cameron before. In the 19th century, his name was William Hannibal Thomas. He wrote a book called The American Negro. He's like, you know, these Negroes need to be whipped into shape. I mean, you know, we've seen him before. There's a book called The Enigma of Clarence Thomas that just came out. The author, and I forget the guy's name, he's a law professor. I went to see him talk. Actually, I bought the book and I went to see him talk here in D.C. His argument is Clarence Thomas is a black nationalist. And, and I, I'm funny because I went to see him. There were probably 100 people there, a little over 100 people. I was the, mm, let me stop. No, I, it was another black dude. There's like two black people there. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And I'm watching, I'm listening to this guy make an argument that we were making back when Clarence Thomas was confirmed. I was in law school, my second year of law school. I'll never forget. Clarence Thomas, his basic thesis seems to be, I'm black. I've always been black. The only way black people are going to make progress in this country is we got to protect those rights that white people have. One right I think we should always protect is the Second Amendment. I believe, like Malcolm believed, and Ida B. Wells, we need to keep our guns, okay? So what about all the rest of the black people? He said, if a Negro is derelict, if a Negro is delinquent, if a Negro has been a criminal, lock that Negro up. So he's hell on the Fourth Amendment. Clarence Thomas always gonna be like, put the needle in their arm, give them the death penalty, shoot them, fry them, whatever. And hit, But that mentality, as James Foreman Jr. writes in his book, Locking Up Our Own, is not unusual among blacks in the upper classes who look at the blacks in the lower classes and say, Just, you know how, how we started this conversation, and I think yes. maybe since we're going live next week, we should probably uh, expand on this because there are a lot of black, a lot of black people who understand, who love love themselves. That you, if you ask them, they love black people. Yeah. But those black people make us look bad. Right. Those black people make it hard for us. So whatever happens to them, we're willing to sacrifice those black people. You see, what I'm and, and, and you know that mentality. Yes. Yes. It's prevalent. It's prevalent. So it's pre it's pre I'm glad. No, 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 no. That's important. In fact, maybe, yeah, we're going live. Let's, let's talk about it next week. You're serious because uh, everybody's rushing out now. And remember, Brown Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, then George Floyd gets killed Memorial Day and the floodgates opened to the point you were raising earlier. Let me, let me put the two things together because I want to talk about these two lawyers in the context of this because it really does have real world implications. Um, as Ron Walter said, when you have the dissolution of a possibility of a black agenda, which means upper class, middle class, lower class, working class, however you want to characterize it, we've got, we all agree in consensus, these are our priorities. Walters is saying we see that thing eroding. And by 2004, he says, look, you see, now they're in, and we got to be careful because if we had an agenda, but it's eroding, and the institutions we used to be able to rely on to help drive that agenda and are, are, are eroding, and that means that a large group of our people will be unavailable for political organizing. What does that mean? That means all these young people that are saying, I don't care who's elected, my hood looks the same. What Walters would say is, see that person there? See those girls and boys over there? See those young people over there? They're politically unavailable. Meaning in order to make them available, you're going to have to do some education. You're going to have to go do some work. You can't fly over them with a drive-by saying vote. Or, no, you can't do, you got to go over there and talk with them. In fact, we need a couple of them to come over here and sit with us. And then they go back. In other words, or better yet, we should even start talking, to, stop talking about going back and coming too. We <laughs> go back to the 60s. You know, ask SNCC. In fact, there's a new book out called SNCC Stories. Sharing my teeth. I just got this book. The African-American Freedom Movement in the Civil Rights South. Now, I don't like the fact that people, these quote-unquote scholars, 
sit on the sidelines are not even born while black people shedding blood, dying, then they wait 20, 30, 40 years, get all their archives to white places and then write books about them. So I'm gonna read the book, but I'm very clear. I am in the genealogy, you are in the genealogy and we should be writing those books. But what she's writing about in part is this movement is informed by and comes out of the people who are there, like that sister Derek Bell is writing about. But, 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 but to tie it again, tie it together. So Walters is saying this, these people are unavailable, they're becoming unavailable, we don't have an agenda, so we need to, 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 to rally around that. Meanwhile, no, no, I'm sorry, let me pause there. What you just described, this class cleavage, this class conflict, what Ron Walters would say is, see that attitude you got toward those people over there? You gotta put that on the side when we can come around. Can we get these 10 points together? I know you don't like the sagging pants. I know you don't like the hip hop music. That's fine. You don't have to, but we should at least all agree on these protections. Can we agree that a woman's reproductive rights is more than whether or not she terminates pregnancy? I know you black. I know you don't believe in having abortions, but do you believe a woman should be able to get a pap smear every six months? Yeah, okay. Do you understand that they make that, that when they overturn this case, she's not gonna be able to go to the doctor and she wants to go to the doctor. She don't have money like you have. She don't have a job with benefits like you have. Do you really, can we at least agree that number two on this or number one on this list should be women's reproductive rights? Yes, okay, fine, we got an agenda. Now, which politician running is going, okay, you get seven out of 10, we voting for you. Cause this other one over here got one out of 10. In other words, that's how you build a political party. You can just run people else. So that's, that's that. Me, no, oh, I'm sorry. One other thing, we can talk about this next week. Even among the black elites, they still trying to figure out which, which one you gonna pick, which one gonna pick me. So everybody's running out in the street. George Floyd been killed and they're scared by they, meaning the people who are managing this criminal enterprise, they're terrified and in a moment, they start throwing stuff out in the street to try to stop this flood because it's more than just black people. It's young white people, it's old white people. So take down all the monuments, pay somebody to come talk to us. <laughs> and then that small group of black elites, there's a, there's a, there's a jockeying. Which, one of, which one's gonna get picked? Which one's gonna get picked? I'm gonna get picked, this is my chance. Isabel Wilkerson's book comes out, Cast. She mentions a book in passing that talks about last place anxiety because among the black elites, they don't wanna be in last place either. The book on that subject is Randy Matori, Lorraine Matori. I think I talked about this book, Stigma and Culture. Stigma and Culture, Last Place Anxiety in Black America. People running out to get the book uh, Stigma, Isabel Wilkerson, that's fine. As my man, uh, Todd Burroughs, Todd, Todd Stephen Burroughs over at Seton Hall wrote a review. He said, I read the whole book and I ain't seen nothing about the Black Liberation Movement, which was an attempt to break through that cast. How are you gonna write so brilliantly about India and African-American because white folk don't want to read about struggles to break that up, but Matori breaks it down. And the reason I bring that up, that what, 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 uh, what Todd was talking about in the context of these two lawyers is this. While all this internal stuff is going on, while all this eternal disintegration of at least coming together on a common uh, agenda is going on, our enemies which aren't always white, but overwhelmingly these white nationalists and the corporate interests who never looked at America as a country except as a holding place for their international corporate interests. They look at these groups as groups. The greatest black nationalists in the country are the white nationalist terrorists. Why? Because they looking at all of us like y'all all the same. So 
have we seen what happened to these two lawyers in New York before? Absolutely, we've seen it, and we can predict what's about to happen. First of all, a couple of factual, uh, factual address a couple of facts in, in, in the article that we were reading together. Number one, they can't get life. So through a little alchemy, I'll go through, and let me read the statute, because remember, this is federal court. So again, we talk about this all the time. People say, it doesn't matter. Y'all talking about federal election. Well, guess what? Ruth Bader Ginsburg is dead. So there goes your argument. Okay, genius. Number one, be quiet. Number two, be quiet. Number three, be quiet. After we get to number 1,000, be quiet. 1,001, understand that most of the federal law in this country is made at the district court level and at the court of appeals level. That's where this, uh, this uh, white Christian extremists and the folks who haven't seen the miniseries, the, the Handmaid's Tale, The Handmaid's Tale, or read Margaret Atwood's book or the one that comes after it, understand this Amy Barrett, that, that he's about to, uh, that he couldn't even wait to root Bay Ginsburg's in the ground to let it leak that he's going to announce. Though, I predicted that he was going to do a white woman. I you sure did. You told us, because I was like, oh, it's going to be, then, uh, it's going to be a white woman. And you nailed it. Not only is it a white woman, this white woman, anyway, let me talk about her in a sec. She's 48 years old. She's on the, uh, what district court is she on? She's on 7th District. 7th District is Ohio, Wisconsin. She's been a judge three years. She's been a judge three years. She is a stone cold, not only is she a Catholic, she and her husband part of a group that was called the People of Praise. The People of Praise doctrinal approach to female-male relations, women cannot be leaders. Only, only thing women can do is advise men on women's affairs. Y'all ever heard that before? In fact, they had a nickname up until recently. They call women in the, in the people of praise. You're not going to believe it, Karen. Handmaids. So anyway, so people thinking they reading and watching. <laughs> this woman, this 48-year-old woman about to be on the Supreme Court of the United States. Can you stop her? Well, I don't know. Do you have any power? Like Bill Maher was talking about the other night. But anyway, the point is this. They look at all of us as the same. Have we seen this before? Yes, we have. We have absolutely seen it before. But like I said, the factual thing, looking at the federal statute, they cannot, the, 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 uh, the penalty for the crime they've been accused of, and let me go, of the 300 or so people who have been charged so far, so far out of 1,300 or something that have been swept up in this so far, uh, 80 have been charged with, so around 80 with using arson or explosives, about 15 for damaging federal property. You get about 30 who have been charged now. They've been formally charged with assaulting a law enforcement officer. The federal laws usually have federal sentencing guidelines. The guideline for using use of explosives is the, it's the explosive statute. In a minute, I'll look through, I, I could go online, I'll give you the, the U.S. code, but it's on 18 U.S. code. I forget the, 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 the exact number on that side of 18, but I, but I looked it up. The federal statute, for explosives ranges in terms of sentencing guidelines from five years to 20 years. Now that's still too much, but you could get life if what you used explosive on endangered somebody's life like somebody was in it. The van that they drove by and threw the Molotov into was already destroyed and was empty. So that would be the only thing to save them from an enhanced sentencing guideline that could give them life. It was already destroyed property. You threw the guy. That don't mean that Toadie Barr and his crew aren't going to go after them, which is the real issue, which is the real issue. Oh, by the way, uh, none of the, because uh, the case hasn't made it to trial yet, uh, a couple of my most brilliant former students, I mean, I'm talking about top of the line, brilliant, um, 
one young, one young sister, in fact, was the editor of the Howard Law Review. I mean, she's just flat foot Britain. She clerked two federal judges. So I mean, I said, what, what, what do you think? She said, look, I don't think this goes to trial. I think they're going to try to negotiate something before it goes to trial for those two. But they ain't going to be able to practice law. They're in their early 30s. Like you said, you shouldn't be throwing Molotov cocktails. And I know you mad, but now you off the field. Somebody going to get arrested to protest and need a lawyer. We needed y'all on the field. You go back to the civil rights movement, you often saw that attitude. Read William Kunstler's uh, biography. You're talking about Angela Davis and them. And I was, I mean, you, you, your, your lawyers who are the, the top intellectual warriors, you don't let them go out there and throw a rock. Now, I can't stop you from throwing a rock, but I need to be here for the phone call. So we got to be smarter than that, particularly now. But the thing is, they gave them bail. Their bail for two people with no prior criminal record. The dude got three children. Princeton, NYU, I mean, top of the line, your hardworking parents. They gave, they set bail at $250,000. The only court. Colin Ford Mattis and uh, Yeruj Rahman. Rahman, yes, yes. $250,000 bail. $250,000 bail. But here's, now here's the thing. That's egregious enough. Bill Barr's uh, prosecutors go to the judge they appeal the district court's decision to give them bail at all. And the Second Circuit, where New York's part of the Second Circuit, the judges on the Second Circuit tell the, the uh, Department of Justice, yeah, no, nah, they did not violate the law. And so when you read the, the letter of the law, you can, no, there is no reason they did not violate the law. They did not, it was not an egregious decision. There's no procedural error here. So they affirmed the lower judge, lower court judge, the district court judge's decision to grant them bail, even though the bail was egregious. Now, in the between time, the, 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 you know, I read that, I read the appeal where they said, you know, no, nah, we affirmed the lower court. In the meantime, I think it was 56 uh, former attorneys general, current and former attorney general, uh, former attorney general, uh, st I mean, state uh, federal attorneys, not the attorneys general filed an amicus brief in support of the principle that they should be able to get bail. And so, uh, you know, an amicus brief, finished the court brief, mean we're not in it, but we want to send a brief in support of one side or the other. So you got other lawyers, including former federal lawyers who are sending an appeals court, a friend of the court brief saying, oh yeah, they should be able to get bail. This ain't about whether or not they are guilty or not. This is just about letting them walk around free until then. And you got, your friends, his, the Trump's fixer, all these other people walking around, you can't give them bail? This is where we are. Have we seen this before? Damn right we've seen it before. Where have we seen it before? Well, my sister, uh, Nkichi Taifa, who I talked about before, in fact, today is the day her book drops, Black Power, Black Lawyer. Nkichi from DC. In fact, this is just the, this is just the, the flyer for it, but the book is dropping today. In fact, the book, the book launches this afternoon. I'm going to it when we leave here, uh, virtually, of course. Nkichi is one of those lawyers who, we can't let Nkichi throw no Molotov. Because Nkichi is the lawyer who helps get the political prisoners out. Nkichi is the one who lived through counterintelligence program. There are a lot of books on COINTELPRO. This is a good one. Churchill and Vanderwall, Agents of Repression, the FBI's Secret War Against the Black Panther Party and American Indian Movement. We've seen this before. What they're gonna do is 
they are going to try to criminalize speech. And under the pretext of threats to national security, they are going to go and sweep up everybody and let the devil sort it out. Most of those 13, 1400 people so far and the number will only skyrocket are not going to be charged. This is about intimidation. Of the ones who are charged, many of them will not be, will be found not guilty, but many of them will be found guilty. Donald Trump, it don't matter who the, who the, the judge is, okay, number one through 1,000, sew your lips shut. Because the federal judge, the district court judge gonna be the one that hear these cases and they gonna put some people in jail forever. The, the, the courts of appeals will either affirm or, um, or, or overturn those decisions, but they're not going to hear a whole lot of them. And the ones they hear, Trump has flipped four, dis four courts of appeals. In fact, the last one he flipped just happened last week when McConnell brought the Senate in to appoint another judge to the Fourth Circuit. See all you black people in Virginia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Maryland, you know what I mean? Black people, that's the fourth. The fifth next door, that's Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia. That's already flipped. And they're one judge away from getting the Ninth Circuit. That's California. That's where the travel ban and all that stuff, the judge is able to stop it over there. Yeah, they can really flip that one too. All you, they're the same party people talking who should, whose lips should now be sewn shut forever, or at least go read Ron Walsh's book, Freedom is Not Enough. Because organizing for political party doesn't mean running candidates, Kanye, whose name actually appeared on the Minnesota ballot. Somebody sent me a picture. They were going to vote. They got in there. They looked. And Kanye West's name is on the ballot in Minnesota. That's because these white people, these white nationalists not playing. They're the ones paying for it. They're the ones putting because they need to pick off 15 or 20 Negroes. And unfortunately, of those 15 and 20, it looked like 8 to 15 of them going to be black men, dummies, are going to run in there and vote for Kanye West or Trump. Anyway, finally, because I know we ran the the question of using the law to stifle dissent has a long history in this country. Um, if you go back and look at, um, in fact, there's a good chapter in Derek Bell's casebook. It's the one I, I use when I teach the class uh, at Howard Law, Race, Law, and Change. Uh, there's a new edition being prepared by a good brother, young brother, uh, and sister, uh, sisters at NYU Law School, the brother Justin Hansford, one of my former students, brilliant brother. Uh, in fact, Marcus Garvey's lawyer. He's trying to get Marcus Garvey a pardon because the, the son, Julius, wants to pardon. He's on faculty at Howard Law. He directs the Thurgood Marshall Center. They're doing a ninth edition, and I'm grateful. I've said, when you get that ninth edition out, I can't wait to get it. But I like the eighth edition so far. I want to see what they do with the ninth because the eighth edition is Derrick Bell. And even though Bell will still be in there, don't change. The ideological front, Derrick Bell fought the fight. He was in the gun smoke. I like the way he frames it. Chapter 10 in his casebook is called The Parameters of Racial Protest. And what he shows us is that protest reveals the law. Meaning what? When a protester is in the street, what she or he is now testing is the limits and the possibility of the law. If you can lock me up for screaming Black Lives Matter, what I have revealed is that the law is the violence, not me. That's, I mean, that's what Bell starts with. Bell says, see, what they're going to reveal is this is the country you live in. So folks who are there said they can't do, they can do whatever the hell they want. Do you understand that what you're about to see is the reality, not the dream, not that BS they pushing? And I understand those, uh, what, 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 keep, what, bring, what brought America together is mythology the aspirational impact. That's why I get 
those who are arguing that, you know, we need to train people and be anti-racist. That's why I get the 1619 Project. That is the play. When you don't have, when you have a weak organizational base and a weak stand, you're making a play to the aspiration to try to recruit a few enough people off to keep the state off your ass. So I get it. <laughs> I don't have no critique. That's, that's as you were saying earlier. Look, we can't win, so let me make a deal. I get it. And I'm making a deal for the rest of us. I know you believe that. So I can't really argue with you. What keeps America together is mythology. What, no, I'm sorry, what brought it together is mythology. To die for us, what keeps it together? What keeps it together is violence. What keeps it together is violence. Because understand that if we think of America as having like concentric circles, at the core of this project is economics. This is a settler state. It started as a series of colonies to extract wealth. Then you have a political ring that comes around it to protect those economic interests. That's why the corporations always win in court. That's why they can use the 14th Amendment. This is judge-interpreted law. And the political structure, that's why you can have a tax cut in the middle of people losing their jobs. Then a pandemic comes, and you can have a whole Senate that has had a bill with $3 trillion sitting in it since May, but the politicians that have been bought, is like, nah. Meanwhile, we're going to gavel in some more judges to reinforce to protect the core. But on the periphery, that's the people. That's everybody. And if you're going to be a racist out there with the Proud Boys, the Hyper America Great, and your American flag, you're going to take an L too. The only thing that can count at that core is the bunch of people who comprise the project. But what binds it together if that core is ever threatened? Because some of those federal statutes about damage of federal property. Understand? <laughs> some of those, what keeps that core protected is the violence against those people who, are, who surround it. That's why Barr is going to unleash these thugs, unleashing his thug lawyers against these two lawyers, unleashing, if they steal this election, the whole federal apparatus in a way we've seen with counterintelligence programs. So whether it be Alfred Woodfuck's, yeah, I know you know this, brother. Uh, this is book, uh, right? So solitary. This man spent, wait, 43 years of solitary confinement in Angola, the Angola Three. What was his crime? Black Panther. They say he killed a prison guard. Um, when you see that happen, we see our brother uh, Jalil Muntaquin, who just got let out after 49 years. He was 18 years old with the Black Liberation Army and the Panthers. He's 68 years old. He spent almost 50 years in jail. He just got out the other day on parole after 10 years of parole hearings. It's almost like, remember that scene in the Shawshank Redemption when Morgan Freeman came in and said, look, man, just go on and stamp your papers. I don't give a damn. And they finally let him out. <laughs> and then he broke camp with the Mexico. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? In Jalil, in Brother Jalil's case, he expressed remorse for killing the two cops. He said, I was 18 years old. Yeah, I'm not, I don't call myself a revolutionary anymore. He said, I'm an evolutionary. But he founded the Jericho Project. The Jericho Project is the project to release those black political prisoners, those prisoners of war. That's where, uh, that's where Nkichi was one of those lawyers to help. She helps with the Jericho Project. Roach Brown in D.C., people all over, all the people in New York who really fight to get these political prisoners. Well, guess what? Trump steals this election, all these people who saying it don't matter, you're gonna be out in the street protesting, you're about to be added to the list of political prisoners. Because we've seen this show before, it's called COINTELPRO. Before COINTELPRO, during the civil rights movement, what did they do? The judges in the, judges in the South, they sanctioned the ability of the protesters. Some of them remarch, all this judge may, okay, they can march, yes they get, but, but the exception they made was for violence. And they would write decisions that say things like, y'all can sit in 
but you can't really sit in at the library. Why? Because libraries are sanctuaries of peace and quiet. So if you go in there making noise, you don't have the protection of the law. Where is that written in the statute? It ain't written in the statute. I'm the judge. So, I mean, so protest, but protest peacefully. Well, what does peaceful mean? I don't know. Who appointed me? Trump? Peaceful mean I'm putting your ass in jail. So I'll make up, you know what I'm saying? And we got the appeals courts now, and we got a 6-3 majority, which means peaceful mean what I say it means. And in this country right now, I know y'all can't get y'all act together, so I'm gonna help y'all, all y'all black. I don't care where you went to school, uh, Mr. Mr. Counselor. I don't care, I'm putting you with, with JJ and Shaniqua and all them, and they say, why are you making fun of people's names? I'm not making fun of people's names. I'm talking in public the way you talk in private. Meaning what? You know, that you, in your life, don't be around them black people either. Well, guess what? Them people who are our enemies don't make no distinction between you and them. So, I mean, and so we saw it in the civil rights movement. We saw it with the sit-ins. We saw it coming forward with COINTELPRO. And here's where it accelerated. This is what's going to bother us now going on. Because, one, like, like you said, the, the girl, the sister, was a, um, she's Indian, I think. This is Stephen Miller's stuff. This thing really accelerated after 2001. The Hamdi case, remember when they torturing people? Ruth Bader Ginsburg came down on the right side of that. That was one of the Fourth Amendment's cases where she said, no, you can't do that. No, no. But now they're going to have the votes to torture whoever they want. And it won't just be, it's going to be enemies, foreign and domestic. So understand that now, after 2001, they're saying, if you got a funny sounding name, that's why I used to wince when Barack Obama said, yeah, skinny kid with a funny sounding. Stop saying funny sounding name, bruh. Do you understand <laughs> that every time you say, your name doesn't sound funny to your father, to your sisters, to your, you have sisters and them, to all the Kenyans. What does it mean to be an American? If it means being a white nationalist terrorist, the law is going to be used to create a new generation of political prisoners. And if we have Albert Wood, uh, Woodford, if we have Mumia Abu-Jamal who's still in, in, in jail, if we have the MOVE 9, seven of which finally been let out and then one died of cancer, if we have the other brother who was with Brother Albert in the, in the, uh, in the Angola 3 who they let out of jail and then the feds charged him again, but he died of cancer before they could bring him back to trial, they don't never forget. And that's what we're facing, Karen. So yeah, that's what we're facing now a new generation of political persecution. And they're gonna use the federal courts and the federal judges. And I thought, you know, on the heels of us talking about Ruth Bader Ginsburg last week, I wanted to just bring that story, bring that case to the forefront for those of you. And we need to protest, because if people like protest don't matter, you know, thank you for saying that it is the oh, thing oh, that- Oh, 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 oh I, I should say this very specifically as it relates to those two lawyers. Karen, and y'all listen, please listen to what Karen just said. This is so important. The judges will have some sentencing discretion. When cases like this receive huge attention, it has an impact. It can have an impact. And the judges who are the federal judges who gave them bail, I think one's a Carter appointee, one's a Clinton appointee. In other words, they go all the way back. Get in the street, support these two. Because what Karen just said, what you just said is this, that is, that is critical. It does matter. Protest absolutely met. If it didn't, they would be sending these thugs out. Thank you for saying that, Karen. Yes. Just like the um, we started two weeks ago, we were gonna talk about Africa uh, because uh, again, our history doesn't start here with slavery. And, yes. and the, on the heels of this re-examination of curriculum, 
on the heels of 1619, 1776, and all this other stuff, I think it's important for us to go all the way back. So we were going to do lessons starting from where we really come. So let me th first, what's on your shirt? Your shirt? Oh, shirt with oh that's funny you say that. Very I got it this morning. Uh, this is my, this is the Association for the Study of Classical African Civilizations, ASCAP. These are my people. In fact, this is this is the hoodie when we were at Mega Evers back in 2019. So you know, Lurie and them, we was over there with their people. Um, this is an organization that was founded in 1985 by black folk from all over the country, really all over the world, to study African civilizations. And so we start with the Egyptians. So if y'all can see them, y'all can see those glyphs. You know, we, we translate the glyphs here. That that running translation is actually rough translation would be African rhythms for African Renaissance. No, actually, that's not true. That's not true. Let me see. I would have to read it on the other side. But because there is no word for Africa in the Metanetic. Africa is a word that comes from the Latin. I mean, you know what I'm saying? The, even that label came from outside. You know what I'm saying? Right. People of Kemet would have said Kemet. In fact, that's actually, that's what it's saying here. Black, right? And then uh, Rek, in, and then Mesu. Mesu simply means to be born again, reborn. That, so Renaissance, that's cute. That comes about 3,000 years after the Africans had a, had a concept called Wehemi Mesu, which means literally repeat the birth. When you get in trouble in a society, actually, that's a good way. When you get in trouble in a society, go back to the last time you were in trouble and solved it and start there for the beginning of the solution you use now. So everybody now writing the books and giving the commentary that didn't start with the last time we're in, there is no theory that explains everything. Somebody come to you and say, I got a theory that explains everything. You should probably just tell them to be quiet too. Go stand over them people that say it don't matter who the judge is. Y'all should just be quiet for a minute. Always go back to go forward. That's the Sankofa. But the origins of Sankofa in Africa in many ways is the Wahemi Mesu. Let's repeat the birth. But to repeat the birth, we need to know what the circumstances were when we got in what they would call like Rekmit and M. It almost translates as time of trouble. When's the last time we had a time of trouble? What we're facing with Trump, we faced during Reconstruction. We faced during uh, Second Reconstruction. So we should go back and look at that and understand. So yeah, that's this 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 is the organization. I've been in this organization since I don't know 1988, 89, and I'm the second vice president. The first vice president, Mario Beatty, teaches at Howard. My dear brother, he is the finest Egyptian student of Egyptian hieroglyphs in the world, as far as I'm concerned, and the man that trained us, Theophilo Bengas, in Congo. So that's a whole that, that is. That is about as far away from a something like how to be anti-racist as you can get and still be in the race. <laughs> so yeah, that's it. That's it. That's our that's our version of how to be anti-racist. Accept your own and be yourself, as Elijah Muhammad would say. <laughs> and I want to I want to end. So next week I want to pick up with you know taking it back. You know yes. to the the first time we were civilized. You yes. know, and, and then going forward. And I also want to end with this Akan. Um, the symbol of loyalty, it, it is a word, Okobin, A-K-O-B-I-N. Oh, oh, wait a oh. minute. She uh -huh. gave you the Okobin horn? It was like a horn, curved yeah. horn yeah. with the little, yeah. ooh, Karen. So what do you know about that, Dr. Karen? What? Look, first of all, what you said earlier, and I'll keep this very short. And the reason, because as you were talking about where we were supposed to go a couple of weeks ago, you see I went and got two of the several versions of the Keber and the Gods off of my stack, because I know you want to talk about Queen of Sheba, so I went. Pull, I started pulling all the Sheba books. Anyway, we we gonna, we're gonna have a good time. But uh, I'm, I'm tying in the Christian with the, you know, because we we still are indoctrinated, so I gotta do what uh, 
who was that? Uh, who was the Roman guy that that blended Christianity in with the pagan holidays to make it palatable? You oh, there's know, so we, many. We, I mean, Constantine. Yeah, Constantine. Uh, Constantine. Constantine. Yeah, Constantine, the Council of Nicaea. Yeah, oh yes, no question. No, but that Uncle Ben. A couple of things. Number one, very, very, very quickly, what you said earlier. Everybody again, you know, can't be dropping jewels and then move straight on to the next piece. There are many words that don't translate in these African languages because culturally the concept isn't there. So all of you all who are continental Africans, who speak continental Africans, uh, languages continental Africans, go find the word prison. You know what you're going to have to say? Well, the word for prison is, uh, I guess we'd have to say prison. Right. They brought that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Where's the word for orphanage? You're not going to find the word orphanage. In other words, there are, because there's certain, see, language is, language conveys culture. So if you, if you don't have a place, if a child becomes father or motherless, somebody else has, they got a whole system, they got systems set up for who raises the child. If you commit a crime against everybody, if it's so egregious, the biggest punishment you can have is exile. You got to leave. They don't keep you there in a box. I mean, no, and, which is why, I mean, because we're human beings. The worst thing you can do to a human being is have them leave the community. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, so, yeah, but people say, well, that's, that's what prisons do. No, no, no. They, they right over there in off Fairmont Avenue in Philly at Eastern State Penitentiary. We drive by them every day. No, you didn't leave. No, because part of keeping them there is also creating an idea that you'll do anything not to go in there and you're better than the people in there. So this sick society, Western society, got all kinds of sicknesses. So anyway, that's number one, what you said. There's certain things don't translate. Number two, we get very specifically to the tree speakers, uh, the Adinkra symbols, those symbols of the Ashanti, the Fanti, the God, those people that they make gold weights out of. And each one of the gold weights, you weigh this against gold dust to see. But each one of them is a symbol. That Uncle Ben, the ancestors, man. And you're right. They got all kinds of symbols. They got one with the four crocodiles facing out, but the crocodiles all meet in the middle because the symbol is four crocodiles with one stomach. Meaning what? Yes, you're individual, but whatever you eat is going to affect all of I mean, so the unity is there. But Ankabin, Ankabin is the war horn. <laughs> Ankabin, that is a symbol that speaks to is us versus anybody who's going to be against us. <laughs> so that's the us symbol. In other words, look, they are coming for our lawyers. They, are they shot Breonna Taylor in her bed. So what are we gonna do? Who is we? Take this right here, this is the Anka Ben. So it, it, that is so much more profound than loyalty that they can't even translate it into loyalty. Cause loyalty, yeah. you know, loyalty almost means, I know you dirty, but I'm dirty with you. No, Anka Ben means we are together in righteousness. In other words, if you're not righteous, you're not with us. <laughs> in other words, there's a moral standard. So you can't trans Loyalty is devoid of morals. I mean, yes. La Casa Nostra, they loyal as hell. Why are they doing they dirt? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So yeah, and people say, well, one thing about criminals, they have a code. What good is a code if you didn't kill somebody's mama? No, we're not down with that. So no, Anka Ben, woo. They knew yeah, she knew, yeah. they knew the right one to get to you because yeah. you definitely no, well, I, <laughs> when I was reading it, you know, the wind instrument, uh, it conveys messages, recounts history, recites proverbs. The pro the proverb signifies alertness and readiness to serve a good cause. It urges people to be ready at all times to serve their nations, even in times of war. It also stresses the need for loyalty to one's nation. 
This is a symbol of loyalty, devotion, and service. And it also requires, signifies courage and strength That's uh, right. with which one's nation is upheld and defended. And it also is a call to duty, which I think, you know, for, for this experience every week that we are in and every day, because we, we stay connected vibrationally, yes. um, I'm keenly aware that we're in a particular time. There's a seismic shift happening. And in order for the breakthrough, in order for the birth to happen, the rebirth to happen, it requires us to recognize who we are. In this That's moment. right. So I'm, I'm just grateful that we're able to have this conversation. So next week when we go live, y'all get your questions ready. Uh, yeah. Some of you can hit us on Twitter and we'll pull some early. I'm going to try yep. to have a moderator so I'm not distracted. Good. Uh, but you can follow, yeah, follow uh, Great Card, Dr. Great Card, Africana Car on Twitter. You can follow me at Karen Hunter. Use the hashtag in class so I can look for your questions. Yes. In class, hashtag in class. The words have to touch in order for me to search. Um, right. And then we'll get questions next week and just start answering. But I want to start going back to the beginning and, and okay. defining, not redefining, because we have to reclaim uh, who we are. And yes. we started this conversation off, Mike, because I was so disgusted that so many of us don't realize how much power, how much sway we have to control not just our own destiny, but the destiny of the entire world. That's right. And uh, we got we to gotta step into this purpose. This, there's no, no, no there's no more placating. We ain't got to tap dance. We don't have to shuck and job. We don't have to change our hair, nope. our vernacular, or anything. Nope. We got everything. And That's right. so I, I thank you for sparking that because you woke something up in me, Dr. Carter. Can't well, you, go back. You, I appreciate that. This, this is Karen. You know I love you. And, and you know that you woke something up in me that renewed that the elders that trained me that are now ancestors, two of them come to mind. We say Anka Ben, the great Lister Belt Middleton out of South Carolina who had a a TV show called For the People on South Carolina Public Television. He was probably the first one who talked about the Anka Ben and the great Asa Hilliard. Asa Hilliard used to always talk about the Anka Ben. And he had a little book called African Power, where he talked about it. So you, 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 you have, those ancestors flowed through you. And everybody understand, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Ahmaud Aubrey, so many. But Breonna Taylor is an ancestor. The way Africans believe generally, and there's no one Africa, of course, but through many of these cultures, when a person becomes an ancestor, they have enhanced power. So while we raise her name and say, say her name and say their names, when you raise her name, she can fight for you. So understand that we all got to go that way. Daniel Cameron, me, you, Cameron, we, we all got to go that way. She's already on the other side. Raise her name and ask her to strengthen us in our fight. And she can strengthen us, right? That we is not just people who breathe it. So thank you, Karen, for, for, for unleashing that vibration, yes. Love you. All right. Love you well, listen, go go uh, celebrate my sister who has her book out. Let's hold up that, that flyer again. Oh, and yeah. I put over here. I got so much over here. Yes. Oh, here we go. Black Power, yeah. Black Lawyer in Kichi Taifa. Yes. Okay. That's, that's, she, that's her now with her lot. Reparations. Okay. She's one of the reparations lawyers. So she's been, she's been a right. member of the National Coalition of Blacks for Reparations in America. She's in all that work. So I would definitely give her the greetings of the whole family. So, and right. when the book Thank come out, we have to talk about it. And I'm gonna put all of the links in the description. Yes, so go yes, y'all subscribe too. Any questions. I'm sitting here writing down books. I'm gonna take some time to make sure that the, the, the links are up so that y'all can go get these books that Dr. Carr, most of them uh, are live. So y'all get your libraries together. Love I you, should. Dr. Carr. Love see you, you live next week. Yes, ma'am, see you live.